Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Kelly Jakes to discuss her book, Strains of Descent, Popular Music and Everyday Resistance in World War II France, 1940 to 1945. Thanks for tuning in. During the German occupation from 1940 to 1944, resistance fighters, Parisian youth, and French prisoners of war mined a vast repertory from a long national musical tradition and a burgeoning international entertainment industry, embracing music as a rhetorical resource with which to destabilize Nazi ideology and contest collaborationist Vichy propaganda. After the liberation of 1944, Popular music continued to mediate French political life, helping citizens to challenge American hegemony and recuperate their nation's lost international standing. Ultimately, through song, French dissidents rejected Nazi subordination, the politics of collaboration, and American intervention, and insisted upon a return to that trinity of traditional French values, liberté, égalité, and fraternité. Strains of Descent recovers the significance of music as a rhetorical means of survival, subversion, and national identity construction, and illuminates the creative and cunning ways that individual citizens defied the occupation outside of formal resistance networks and movements. I'm very excited to welcome Kelly Jakes to the show to discuss Strains of Descent today. Kelly is assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the College of Charleston. Her research focuses on rhetoric and culture with special attention to social movements, resistance, and music. In her work, she examines how marginalized or dissident citizens use verbal and nonverbal discourse to build solidarity, reassign political authority, and contest norms of national identity, gender, race, and class. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. And I wonder if we could start with a bit of scene setting since we're talking about a kind of particular area of history and a, and a region of the world that folks probably are less familiar with, could you give us a sense of what popular music was like in early 20th century France? Absolutely. So there are really two different genres of popular music that French citizens had at their disposal in the time period that I'm looking at. And each one of these was linked in its own way to different versions of French national identity. Before I talk about those two genres, though, I I thought I would give maybe some additional background information so that listeners can fully appreciate what popular music meant and what the act of music making meant in France at the time. So that is to say that you really have to appreciate the fact that the act of singing in France was a mode of democratic participation. It was one of the major ways that French dissidents during the French Revolution all the way back in the 18th century voiced their disapproval of the monarchy, worked out, you know, what kind of democracy they wanted to get to after the fighting ended. And it was really significant because all citizens had access to it, whether or not they were literate, whether or not they had any sort of social standing, everyone could sing. And so um, singing became a, a really dominant mode of civic participation during the revolution. And that tradition really continued all the way through the 20th century. So um, in the 19th century, as France modernized, singing through various ways was linked to participation in democracy or to the modernization of the state. In the 20th century, with the First World War, song culture helped people uh, understand that, you know, this total war, the first total war that we had seen. So both soldiers at the front and civilians at home were uh, listening to songs, uh, writing their own songs. Song culture was just huge during the First World War. So that's the stage 
that uh, French citizens during the Second World War are entering. Song musical tradition in France has this sort of link already to democratic participation and to a sense of like French liberalism. Okay, so let's get to the, the genres of pop music that I teased. The first one that, that French citizens really had access to was a genre of popular music called chanson. A chanson is just the French word for song. These are just popular songs, tend to celebrate sort of realistic themes of, you know, everyday struggles in life, sometimes lost love, sometimes, you know, living uh, in poverty. So all kinds of different themes, but they're all related to just everyday struggles of every man and every woman. But they were considered to be sort of the musical expression of the true French citizen. And if you could see me, I'm putting true in quotation marks. Uh, so for a long time, different French cultural critics had talked about chanson as being sort of the outgrowth of the natural French body, the fit natural French body with a regular heartbeat. The like normal meter of French chanson was held to be an outgrowth of the, the normal beating of the healthy French heart. So chanson was really like considered to be the, the, um, the natural biological music of the healthy French citizen of French culture generally. And then through other, other debates, it became linked to not only Frenchness, but French republicanism and through the traditional values of liber liberal individualism. So chanson for people in 1940 was a music that was already linked to a sort of traditional France and to the values of French republicanism. The other genre of French music that people had was jazz. Jazz was hugely popular in World War II France. And to some people, jazz was really concerning. It was a symbol of racial degeneration for a number of French music critics. You know, they believed that jazz music, because it was uh, the music of Black Americans, you know, would lead to a sort of general demoralizing of French people, right? That they would submit to these lascivious impulses and they would, you know, stray from the traditional confines of Catholic marriages and uh, of traditional family structures. But to others, it was a symbol of um, a really a modern, egalitarian, sort of forward-looking France. So um, people who wanted France to become more cosmopolitan really celebrated jazz. So you can see then that jazz was, although to some, a symbol of concern for others, it was really a tool for disrupting very strict gender and racial norms. And that became very important as French citizens understood what it was like to live under occupation of Germany because obviously um, both German officials and Vichy officials, Vichy was the administration that was collaborating with uh, the Germans. They were imposing really strict gender and racial norms. So jazz became a tool to help destabilize those. I want to come back, as you said, to thinking a little more extendedly about jazz as, as we get into the conversation a little more. But I wonder if we could return to the chanson for just a minute. Could you say a little bit about how those things were produced and transmitted? Maybe give some examples of, you know, what those songs were like. So they, I mean, really through the radio, that's how they were transmitted. Probably the most famous singer of chanson would be Edith Piaf. That's the, pe the person that people most uh, associate with the genre. She's the most famous, especially for American audiences. It was definitely a commercial music. It was recorded. Um, it emphasized also, this is one thing I forgot to mention, the beauty of the French language. So uh, a lot of people who write about chanson talk about it as much as sort of a literary form as it is a musical form. And that's another reason that it was so linked to French national identity, because of course the French language is considered by many, including many French people, to be one of the most beautiful languages in the world. So it was a celebration, not just of French music, but also of the French language. You know, when you think about the revolution, or I, I know a fair bit about 18th century English balladry, 
you think about the way that popular audiences come to take up this music and pass it among themselves. And I guess I ask about Shinsong in this context, because there's an interesting way in which it becomes a kind of, you know, under the occupation in the Vichy regime, there's ways of transmitting knowledge among people or, or signaling identity that are that are less explicit than they are institutional. Well, yeah, for sure. So definitely, you know, in the in the olden days, so in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, these songs would have been passed through sheet music, right? People would have just um, written down little songs and passed them to one another, or they spread orally. There were troubadours that would come through the town singing, and people would hear songs like that. And then they would, because they're so easy to learn, they could learn them very quickly, and then, you know, sing them to friends and family the next night. And then slowly, they would change the lyrics. And so these became sort of like living art forms that were constantly changing. And there was definitely some of that during the Second World War II. That's one of the reasons that music was such a great tool for these people living in an incredibly oppressive and repressive environment. They could sing them and modify them and use them without having to leave a paper trail. I wonder if we could pursue that a little bit further into what it starts to look like after Hitler and the army begin to, you know, after Hitler's army starts to occupy France in the 1940s. And the French people are starting to live under, you know, this oppressive totalitarian regime that, as you said, has very rigid ideas about who is a citizen and what is an appropriate way of being in the world. How does that change, you know, the shape of popular music in the period? So I guess one of the first things it does um, is it takes, so Vichy and the Nazis decide to ban American jazz from the airwaves. So it puts a stop to French citizens' ability to hear American jazz, but it doesn't put a stop to their ability to hear to hear jazz. In the absence of all this American jazz, French jazz musicians come in and they start recording sometimes their own versions of popular American jazz hits. So French people still can hear, for example, the American jazz tunes that they learned to love in the 30s. Now they're just played by French musicians and sometimes they have French lyrics instead of English lyrics, for example. But then also that creates, you know, space for French musicians like Django Reinhardt to become trendsetters and, you know, world-class musicians in their own right and to develop, to develop their own following. Jazz does not suffer. And if, if anything, jazz really takes off during uh, the Second World War, which surprises a lot of people who think that like, oh, well, the Nazis are in charge, so jazz is off the airwaves. That's not true. The, the Nazis were smart enough to know that if they banned jazz outright, it would not go over well. It was so popular, you know, that they knew it was important to sort of like coax cooperation with the French to give the people what they wanted culturally. So like Radio Paris, the main radio station, they went from playing four hours of jazz per week in 1940 to playing over 35 hours a week of jazz in 1941. So you can see like huge, huge demand. The other thing I guess I would say is that both Vichy and Nazi Germany realize that music is a tool that they can use as well in their own ideological and political battle. Then the Nazis are this, I thought this was fascinating. They are really upset, uh, even though Germany, of course, is the powerhouse of great composers, right? Uh, Germany has Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, all the, the greats. They were nonetheless very, very um, threatened by French culture because France had been, and particularly Paris, had been the sort of cultural taste setter for the world for centuries. So the Germans really were careful to try to promote German music, um, and they had all of these different requirements. For example, you went to hear an opera or you went to, to hear um, a performance of the, the, the symphony did they would mandate that a certain number of those pieces were written by German composers. They would even mandate that a certain number of tickets were sold to German officers so that the audience was half German and half French. They really understood that they had to try to promote German music 
over French music because they were so worried about France being able to retain its cultural superiority and you know, thereby some ability to resist Nazi hegemony. And then Vichy also realized that, that music was an important tool, especially because music had already been so linked to national identity. And Vichy was staking a lot of its own political legitimacy on its claims to national belonging. The leader of the Vichy administration, Philippe Pétain, one of the most popular propaganda posters that he posted all over France was a picture of himself, you know, looking very stately in, a, in his military uniform. And then the caption read, are you more French than he is? And so, of course, the obvious answer is no. And because, so since Pétain was the most French of all the French, then he had the you know, unquestionable right to lead the nation and to, to dictate the, um, the politics of collaboration with the Germans, or to, uh, not to dictate, to acquiesce really to the politics of collaboration with the Germans. So, and they did a lot. They recorded a new anthem for, uh, in celebration of Pétain that tried to use chanson uh, to build support for Pétain's policies, right? It was just this anthem. They, they borrowed a really famous tenor to sing it and record it. And then they played it at all different kinds of state events. They passed out pro-Vichy songbooks to, to the youth in schools. Of course, they banned American jazz from the airwaves. So, Everyone involved understood, both French citizens, the Vichy administration, and Nazi Germany understood that music was a really powerful weapon in war, and that it could, it could build support, and it could also help to dictate, um, as you said, what it, mean, what it meant to be an ideal citizen. You know, it's really interesting to hear about official attempts to you know, write national songs, to hand out songbooks that inculcate certain kinds of so-called patriotic feelings among the youth and all of those kinds of things. Did that have a, a double side where they're also trying to crack down on you know, what we would identify as the more rebellious kinds of musical activity, nightclubs and youth carousing and all that sort of thing? Yes, for sure. Especially in the case of Parisian teenagers called the Zazus. They ran, you know, into some trouble and, and several of them were arrested and sent to labor camps because they were they were running too far afoul of the law. You know, I think Vichy and, and Nazi Germany were willing to give a little bit of lenience. But then, you know, if you went too far outside of, of what was allowed, then you could get in serious trouble. Do you know, there's a lot of interesting tensions in your work around not just national identity, but also racial identity in the way that music frequently comes from, you know, folks of one outsider race and is, you know, co-opted by other groups. And it seems to me, you know, as, as much as I know about 20th century France, it seems like the Zazus are an interesting opportunity to think a little bit about that and the racial issues involved. So the Zazus, just for people who don't know, they were uh, a group of teenagers, um, mostly in Paris. That's really the only city that their, their activity is documented. And they were hugely interested in swing and in jazz, and they used those terms interchangeably. Some critics fault them for that, but to these teenagers, that was the same genre of music. They not only listened to music, but they created this racialized identity based on their love of jazz, and they called it being Zazu. So Zazu was not just a descriptor, it was an ontological state, right? You were Zazu. And uh, for them, that was a racial category. And in their songs and the songs that they would listen to on the radio that, that also took up this word, they would imbue the category of Zazu with all of these different racial characteristics, right? Like, so um, the way that the Zazu looked was different. The men, for example, had long hair that looked like it had been oiled with salad dressing. That's one of my favorite descriptions of the Zazu man's hair. They had a lot of sex. That was another thing that the songs talk about, like how, you know, how crazy they were in the bedroom, how many children they had. They describe also being Zazu as something that is 
biological and that it's passed down to your children. So, you know, you'd get with a Zazu woman and then you would have a bunch of Zazu children. Uh, so they're really playing in the in the lyrics of the song with all of the typical racial markers, right? That um, there, are, there are these physical uh, markers of racial identity and also these behavioral markers of racial identity. But that wasn't all that they did. Then they went a step further and they actually dressed themselves as Zazu. So they would they borrowed the zoot suits from American jazz men and they altered them slightly. They put a sort of French flair on them. And the benefit of the zoot suit is that it actually did sort of change the proportions of your body. It makes, um, the, and Ralph Ellison describes this in his novel, um, Invisible Man, but it made your legs look sort of abnormally short and your torso look abnormally long so that you, you were using fashion in essence to change the physiology of your body. So that really helped. That really went a long way toward putting some teeth behind this, this name Zazu as an actual racial identity. If people could look different, if they could change the way their bodies were. And it was really important, of course, and I should mention, the people who were doing this were white, uh, often upper class French teenagers who were Catholics. You know, they, these were not Jewish kids. They weren't um, black kids. They were white, Gentile often wealthy kids who were able to do this and they needed that identity. I argue in the book, like it's, it's sort of odd. I think recognizing their racial privilege here helps understand the, helps us understand their ability to make the critique because they, as white kids, you know, they were perceived as having no, no racial identity. They were the invisible race, right? That's how whiteness really derives its power as, as appearing to us to, to be no race at all. So that from that position, then they could put on a different race. And that, of course, really, really irked the authorities. And um, in the end, they were actually attacked in the streets and the collaborationist youth would shave their hair and rip their clothing and uh, through physical force, bring their bodies back under, you know, the, the control of the state. You know, it's really interesting that you point out that these are white folks of privilege who are attempting to other themselves in some way by changing the way their bodies appear through dress by listening to music that you know their elders or authority figures you know more more directly would find you know abhorrent or want to ban from the airwaves in some way or other are there patterns in their resistance that that translates sort of more broadly to how folks that maybe aren't part of a movement like that were using music to resist the oppressive regime? Well, I think like it actually kind of reminds me, it's not that dissimilar from what the POWs were doing. So um, another part of my book talks about the French prisoners of war who were taken and held in Germany, often for the full five years uh, of the war. Well, the war was four years, but then there was some administrative time it took these guys to get out of these camps and come back home. But there was the most soldiers ever taken as prisoners in one time in the history of warfare. 1.6 million Frenchmen were just all of a sudden, and many of them, most of them had not seen active combat. They were just, boom, they were, they were prisoners without even having had the chance to fight. So that was hugely emasculating. The conditions of the defeat were emasculating. It only took the Germans six weeks to, be, to beat the French. The French sustained over double the amount of casualties that the German army sustained. And so, you know, the conditions of the, the, of the defeat were humiliating. The conditions of the armistice were humiliating. The conditions of the occupation were humiliating. And the soldiers really felt like they were on the hook for this, that they bore the blame for France's fall. And they suffered a huge sort of collective sense of emasculation. This is like the most shocking thing I found in my research was what these guys did in their spare time. So, uh, and they had tons of spare time. That's the other thing um, to let the listeners know, especially if you were an officer, 
you could not be assigned to a work detachment in these prisoner of war camps. So you were protected by the Geneva Conventions from working. So they, you know, they had nothing but time and they would create these amazing plays and um, comedy nights and uh, operettas in the case of what I'm studying. They had these really, really rich cultural centers in their camps. They had newspapers that ran, you know, like every week there was a new newspaper. So there were these like pretty sophisticated cultural resources that these men constructed. But in the, what fascinates me about the operettas is that, first of all, like the idea of a bunch of men putting on an operetta and singing and dancing for one another is really fascinating. But then I realized, of course, that they're, they're dressing up as women to play the parts that the female leads. And I was expecting when I started this research and realized that this was going on, that this was just going to be like an opportunity for humor, that they would, you know, put these women on the stage and have a good laugh. But really what the operettas were allowing them to do, and many of them were the tales of romantic love, they were allowing men to engage in the sexual objectification of women, even though the women were just really men. So they had been, of course, told by, back to your original question, the, the Germans and Vichy, and to some extent, even French citizens back home had sort of lain the, the guilt of defeat at these men's feet, told them that they weren't men enough, and that was at least how they perceived it. And uh, instead of acquiescing to that, they used operetta to say, no, actually, we're incredibly virile, sexually powerful men. And the way that we're going to be able to feel this about ourselves is to create these operettas and, and use these female impersonators to enact uh, our male gaze, right? And not only just to get to experience heterosexual desire and, and the power of the male gaze, but to experience women's desire for us. That was another big thing that the operettas did was to try to convince men that they were the sole purveyors of like female sexual gratification. That was hugely resistant to the occupying forces, right? The, the German guards who would be at these camps, there's stories that I would read in these men's diaries about being in the dressing room, you know, preparing costumes for the next operetta. And a German guard would come in and like rifle through the women's clothes that these men, you know, they had like professional tailors and stuff who would make these women's gowns. And the, the German officers are like fantasizing about French women themselves. And, but the French, you know, and, and French women, of course, by this time too, had this sort of uh, this reputation worldwide of being the most beautiful, the most seductive, the most fashionable. But French men got to lay claim to them and, and say back to these German officers, no, these are our women. You know, they're not, they're not yours. So that is like an instance to me that sort of is similar to what the, the Zazis are doing. It's using music to refuse to, to buy into whatever subject position you're, whoever's in an authoritative position over you is trying to get you to assume. You're saying, nope, I'm not going to see myself like that. I am like this instead. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Kelly Jakes, author of Strains of Descent, Popular Music and Everyday Resistance in World War II France, 1940 to 1945. It's also interesting that it changes the sort of field of engagement subtly, you know, to some degree, so that these, it's, almost, it's not quite a proxy warfare experience you're describing, but there is a weird way in which the terms of of engagement change between prisoner and guard when you introduce this kind of element of cultural criticism or cultural activity into what's going on there where the officers, as you say, are critiquing the costumes and being attracted to the performers or being, you know, repulsed by the performers or like that the operetta has a sort of mediating effect between these two groups that puts, you know, I think, as you point out in the book, that puts the sort of prisoners in a kind of position of power, or at least in a position of resistance. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. And they even use these operettas as sort of allegories to help themselves feel like they're still needed in France. One of their huge uh, anxieties was, well, first of all, were their wives cheating on them with German occupying forces? That was, you know, something that kept them up at night. But then also, like, did the, had the nation just forgotten about them? Like, were they just going to be left in Germany in perpetuity? You know, and the, was anybody sticking their necks out for these guys and trying to get them back home? Had the nation just sort of moved on without them? In these operettas, they would liken themselves to like Snow White is the example I use in, in the book. Snow White is like a figure that represents France and Prince Charming is the POWs. And so Snow White is like slumbering, you know, in occupied under occupation, waiting for Prince Charming, the POWs to come home and rescue her. So they like use, you know, uh, sexual power and uh, as an allegory really to help themselves feel needed and feel masculine again in the face of their capture. The Snow White example is fascinating to me. Are they mostly drawing on kind of traditional stories, you know, stock narratives like that? Or were there products of original genius being performed in the in that camp? It was both. Um, so they would use the sort of stock stories um, and old operettas. They would allude to old operettas, even in a new operetta. It was a huge, you know, anything, anything went. But you're, but yeah, some of them were completely original stories with a fully original cast, fully original plot lines. But the music, the melodies, most of the melodies were taken from operetta or chanson. So they didn't, at least in my experience in the operettas that I found, have new music written. The tunes were borrowed from other things and the lyrics were new and the plot lines were new. Did any of that stuff survive and make its way back into French popular music? Oh, that's a great question. I have not seen any of it. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that, um, yeah, I, I actually don't think that many French people know about this. You know, I don't think that that they, one of the complaints actually of um, of prisoners of war and one of the things that scholars have pointed out as well is that they, their story really became subsumed by the Holocaust, that people didn't pay attention really to what happened to the prisoners of war because there was this other massive human tragedy occupying everyone's time and attention. And I think that still, you know, many uh, French prisoners of war, well, before they died, most of them are dead now, really felt like they didn't have the opportunity to tell their stories the way they wanted to. It's interesting that these things are all happening at once. I mean, I'm thinking about ways in which you just depict music as being a kind of resistance force and, and it's happening in, one, in the camps in one way, it's happening for the Zazus in another way. Are there characteristics that tie musical resistance in France together, or are they all kind of appropriating and doing different kinds of things dependent on their circumstances? I guess I think the thing that ties it all together is music's relationship to national identity. That for, in, in all of the cases, you know, there are sort of four cases that I talk about in the book, French resistance fighters, the Zazus, the prisoners of war, and then the citizens of liberated France especially in the major port towns where Americans are coming in. I think really the reason that France is a special case is that music is so had been so tied to national identity in the first place. And so it's that link that people are then able to exploit in different ways. They can appropriate music as a tool in whatever way suits them, but it's because all of these different versions of music or different genres of music and even the act of singing have been linked to national belonging. One of the points that you make in the book, particularly toward the end of the book, is that there's a degree to which American culture facilitates some of this resistance. You know, jazz is a quintessentially American expression that that finds its place overseas in, in a variety of areas. 
and it's a way of resisting, but there's also some inherent resistance to that as well. Like it's not, we're not going to just turn France into a colony of the United States. It's instead a lever that allows folks to get out from under, you know, Hitler and the Vichy regime. Could you think a little bit about what American culture has to do with this dynamic? You're absolutely right that American culture is facilitating a lot of this potential for resistance, right? The Zazus can't use jazz to like illustrate how ridiculous an idea of a centralized race is without the history and tradition of American jazz that comes from Black musicians. But then, as you as you indicated at the liberation, this it becomes sort of a liability. The Americanness of this music, especially for a France that is, you know, France has been really decimated economically. Uh, its infrastructure has been badly damaged. Um, its reputation has been badly damaged, and so it's it's trying to figure out how it's going to uh, reassert itself on the international stage and and reconsolidate any of its power. And many people don't realize this too. It was not at all clear that France was going to be a free France in 1945. And in fact, um, the American government didn't really want to restore a free France and it took a long time, many, many months for Roosevelt to acknowledge de Gaulle as the rightful leader of France. Instead, we, uh, the United States government hoped to institute a sort of military uh, and a military alliance um, between all of the allies that would oversee France that would not actually restore sovereign, uh, sovereignty to France. Up until the liberation, France has like really rejoiced over its relationship to jazz and um, used jazz to form all, all this resistance. But then the Americans come in and they've got, you know, all of this new jazz music that nobody's heard before that French citizens are clamoring for. You know, that American musicians have been writing during the war and nobody's heard. So everybody's super excited to get these new jazz hits. But not only that, they have all of this money. I mean, these GIs are coming in and they are like, you know, kings of the castle. They've got Jeeps, they've got GI rations, they've got Hershey bars, they have cigarettes, they have everything. And these French people have nearly nothing. And also remember that 1.6 million of France's most virile men are still in Germany. So, you know, they're coming into this, uh, into this void where there are not many young French men. There are all these French women um, who've been starving, right? And so, um, and, and all these French women and French teenagers want to hear all this jazz music. So people are really concerned at the liberation that, that France is just going to become super Americanized and that there's going to be no resistance at all to the Americanization of France and to, you know, the, the political uh, intrusion of America's government onto France. So what ends up happening then is that the, these jazz critics who have been writing in this periodical called Jazz Hot that had a lot of uh, uh, international acclaim. It was a well-known jazz periodical. Start sort of divorcing jazz from the United States. And their move there is to make jazz a cultural product of France instead of, of the United States. And they do that in a couple of ways. One way is to deny the legitimacy of any jazz that is not written by and performed by Black musicians. That's the first sort of discursive step that they take. And that's important because if they can argue that all real jazz is black jazz, then they can point to the history of American racism and say, see, you guys don't own this. You've been jerks to black Americans, you know, since time immemorial. And France has been a fertile ground where black musicians can practice their talent, right? And, and become true masters of their art. So jazz really belongs to France. And so that becomes um, a key move that they make to sort of like take the at least put up some resistance to like the Americanization of French culture is just to say, you know, the best of your culture is actually ours. 
it was never yours. It's a pretty smart argument. So yeah, I, I love that chapter. That last chapter, I think is really, really a fascinating one. And it's just an, an interesting, like one of the stories that I read in um, reading people's diaries and accounts of this time was uh, watching. So the Germans have now, you know, now they're the prisoners of war. The German, the former occupying forces are now prisoners held captive by Americans. And there's a group of American GIs who instructs, and they're black GIs, they instruct a bunch of German prisoners of war to drive around town and pick up all these French women to bring them to a party that they're throwing and there's going to be all this live jazz. And just like the image of black GIs ordering German prisoners of war to go round up French women and bring them to their party, it just blew my mind. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on what there. A wild transfer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it was that was a really fun chapter to write. Yeah. Well, and it does. I mean, it is interesting to think about the sort of this cultural slippage, you know, that sort of way in which in one context, the that American, you know, jazz music is a is a sort of liberatory opportunity to you know put a stick in the eye of the authorities. But then in a wholly different context, it becomes itself the sort of tool of you know, cultural appropriation and, and oppression and like other kinds of. Absolutely. And it has to be, I think what the French realized is that it had to be contained. Like somehow uh, American jazz needed to be contained and the best way to contain it was to actually steal it, which I, I thought was like so fascinating. Well, and connected, I mean, in the same, in the same way, I think, similar to what the Zazus are doing, right? This sort of like containing this wild force um, and repurposing it for their own ends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's certainly true. Um, they really blew the the top off though. They kind of like blew the lid off of what jazz, uh, like jazz's destabilizing tendencies, at least in the eyes of, you know, their, um, their parents and the authorities who wanted them to be good traditional Catholic girls and boys. You know, they were like, Let's see how crazy we can get. Let's really freak everybody out. And, it, you know, some people, um, I think, like have criticized the Zazus or not believed that they were actually, that their performance of, of Zazu identity was really political at all, that it was really just like a bunch of apolitical teenagers who were just rebelling. Um, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I mean, these are kids who like when the Yellow Star campaign happened in, in France and Jews had to wear the Yellow Star with Jew, of course, written on it, the Zazus went out and made themselves yellow stars out of construction paper and wrote Zazu on them or swing or jazz, you know? And, and so it was like, that seems so purposeful. And so um, like, you know, like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take this category that I've invented and I'm gonna fully racialize it to the point that like, I'm gonna put on my own yellow star that marks me as a different race. As the occupation starts to come to an end, you know, in 1944, do these activities linger? Maybe how does this period of, of using music as a sort of means of resisting Hitler's regime and the Vichy regime, how does that transform popular music, you know, in the second half of the 20th century? Oh, man, that's a great question. I can tell you that still singing is linked to political action in France. I was, uh, when I was actually researching this book, I went to a labor protest and they were singing 
the official resistance anthem from the Second World War at the labor protest, but with updated lyrics to reflect the struggle of these workers. So this tradition is still alive. And even some of the songs that came out of this period are still being used and you know, repurposed for modern day social movements. The other interesting thing, you know, I talk about this at the end of the book is um, I think France's relationship with jazz is still, um, we still see like the legacy of this moment in the current uh, relationship that France has to jazz. France still is keen to like maintain a certain ownership over jazz and a certain like fidelity to jazz and concern about a certain like custodianship of jazz, I guess. And one of the things that surprised me as I was doing my research is that there was like a celebration in Marseille at the, I think it was in 1955, it was like the 10 year anniversary of the official end of the war. And they, they like mixed a celebration of the end of the war with a celebration of bebop. And I thought that was fascinating. And then I was like, well, actually that makes a lot of sense because one of the ways that France reasserted its international standing um, was to reassert itself as like a cultural leader of the world. And part of that was by gesturing to all the work it had done to, to encourage jazz musicians, both American jazz musicians and French jazz musicians, the work it had done to, you know, try to encourage the world to not be so racist when it came to appreciating this music and to see it as real art, you know, which the French absolutely did. So I think that there is some of that. There's still in France, like a sense of pride over having been really the, the main nation to really back jazz and show a scholarly uh, interest in jazz. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about scholarship in music, like what it is to study music in this period, especially what, what are the kinds of resources that are available and what kinds of scholarly moves are necessary to really dig into, you know, this really complicated phenomenon that is, you know, you've described it as a literary form. It's a social phenomenon. It's a tool of national belonging. How do you go about approaching a phenomenon like music? Yeah, it is, it's so complex. And Scholars, especially in communication and rhetoric, have talked about for a long time how, how it's difficult to study music because it's not a very stable signifier. It means so many different things to different people. And I have sort of struggled to stabilize it. So one of the ways that I've done that is to, I, I try to account for at least three different axes. One is what, what are the lyrics saying? I think the lyrics in all of the cases that I'm studying are important because people are, are choosing, in many cases, their own lyrics. So in at least Two examples, um, both the resistance fighters and the, the prisoners of war, they're writing their own lyrics to the songs that they're disseminating throughout the nation. So the lyrics are, of course, then important, as are the, the melodies that they're using. I mean, especially in the case of the resistance fighters, where they're, you know, they're sort of sampling the Marseillaise, for example, or, um, you know, using traditional marches that would have been, you know, celebrated in, in France's glory days of, you know, military triumphs, right? They're, they're using those in these songs. So those are important too. The words and the music are important. But then the move that I make in this book um, that I think is really significant is to open music beyond just what's on the, on the page. So to not just look at what's happening on the score, but to look at the ways that people are doing music. There's a musicologist called Christopher Smalls who tries to remind scholars that music isn't a thing. It's something that we do. It's an activity. So by doing that, then I can see, okay, well, when the Zazus are wearing zoot suits, what is that doing, right? That they're their performance of jazz, their doing of jazz is not just in the songs they listen to or sing, it's in the clothes that they wear too. And then, you know, the same thing with the French POWs that 
they're doing music, not just by performing the operettas, but even in writing about them in the newspapers. That's doing music, right? As they review and critique these performances and figure out what they mean. Um, and certainly in the last case where I talk about the French jazz critics writing in the periodical Jazz Hot, they are doing music by trying to um, refract sort of the political struggle that's going on between the United States and France at the liberation through a, a conversation about jazz and who really owns it, that that is also doing music. So I think the one thing that scholars maybe, I hope, can benefit from is trying to take a wider view of what constitutes a musical text, that it's not just the score. Yeah, I think also like one of the things that I've done in this book is to really try to focus on the ways that people people are using music instead of focusing on what the commercial music industry is doing. So that to me is it's just much harder. Like if I don't know how anybody looks at a you know commercially produced song and does a rhetorical analysis of it. Because in the hands of the artist who's recording it, I mean, how do we how do we know what the motivations are? I mean, that to me is a truly polysemous text and it's it's really open to the audience's interpretation. So I guess like what my book tries to do is say, okay, well, here's the audience. The audience is all of France. These are all the tools that they have. How are they using these tools? You know, For listeners who have, who have stuck with us to the end here and who have heard this really fascinating discussion that we've, we've been at a kind of abstract level, really thinking about the grand historical moves of these things. What kinds of recommendations would you make for folks who might want to hear some of this music? who might want to get a sense of, you know, what it sounded like and, and what people were actually listening to uh, in this period? I would definitely suggest um, listening to the American jazz hits of the 30s, because that would have been what people in the 40s were still listening to. And then to, to look into uh, people like Django Reinhardt, who were super prolific in the 40s. Um, he had a quintet um, it was called the Quintet of the Hot Club of France, and um, the music is phenomenal. He really reorchestrated like the traditional sound of a jazz quintet. So instead of using a lot of brass, he uses more strings. There are like two guitar players. There's a violinist, but it's a different orchestration of the typical jazz quintet, um, and it's it's really lovely. And then uh, let's see, any other Edith Piaf? I would recommend Tino Rossi is another famous singer of this time. The, the stuff that was on the radio that the Zazus are listening to, you can find that on the internet. If you type Zazu jazz 1940s, you'll get some of those hits. That, that music to me sounds really funny. It's, it's like, I, I don't know, it's, it, it, doesn't hold, it doesn't hold up as well as um, the jazz stuff that, um, that people like Django Reinhardt are doing, which, you know, you can put that on and cook dinner tonight and have a great time. Well, thank you so much for, for the recommendations and for this really, really fascinating conversation. I, I have enjoyed so much spending time with your book and thinking about this period and all of the fascinating music and culture that comes along with it. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation and what a privilege to get to talk through it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Kelly's book, Strains of Descent, Popular Music and Everyday Resistance in World War II France, 1940 to 1945, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. 
Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books. <laughs>